I land on the Emerald Isle on a cool October day. I take the bus from Dublin Airport to the city center. I love Dublin for all the reasons Americans love Ireland. It's not that different, but different enough. They have similar food, style, literature, and goddamn those accents. Have an Irishman say the word peanut butter to me, and I've already decided that we will have a June wedding, only because it's the least rainy month in Ireland. It's practical. I stepped off the bus and inhaled the crisp October air, blended with what smelled like bacon. It was this smoky, fatty scent that brought me back to making Sunday breakfast with my family as the smell of pork perfumed my house. It was comforting. Maybe I love it here because my ancestors are from here. Maybe it's because it was the first place I've heard English in a really long time. But Ireland felt like home. I hopped into a Starbucks to steal their Wi-Fi and find the directions to my couch surfer's place. It was a little out of the city center. I checked the couchsurfing website and noticed that he hadn't messaged me back yet. But I, I have his address and his phone number, and we confirmed a long time ago, so I'll just send him one more message. I'll give him a quick call. And I wait 15, 20 minutes. The kind of waiting where you keep letting it extend. Okay, five more minutes, and then I'll go. But after 40 minutes of waiting, I started to get anxious. He knows I'm coming, so I bullied up and started to head over. I strolled south as the city became more residential. The doors on these quaint brick buildings popped out, slabs of green, red, yellow, blue, the kind of palette found in an elementary school, as if Crayola had funded the doors of every building in the street. Each of them had a gold doorknob and mail slot, making it feel so so goddamn British. I love it. Fifty minutes later, I make my way to a little housing complex with an Irish twist on cookie-cutter architecture. I go up to the appropriate door and knock. I hadn't seen any cafes or anything like that in this area, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do if my host isn't... if he's not here. And then the doorknob turns. Oh fuck, I almost forgot you were coming, said James, who seemed to be about my age and was hosting me for the next few days. He stood in the doorway, clutching the top of his bathrobe like he was a desperate housewife, not expecting a call. Good thing you messaged me, he said. He was taller than me, but not by much. Broad shoulders, masculine face covered with a nicely grown-up beard. He was, um, he was a solid broke. What's on your face, I asked. Out was whiskers from a Halloween party last night. I was a sexy cat. Fuck that voice. I walked into his apartment and put my stuff down on the couch. He made me a whiskey from his cabinet as I perused his little library in his living room. We quickly bonded over our love of literature in New York. He had lived there for a bit and was enamored with it and going back in a month and a half. As I tried to learn more about Irish culture, our conversations would always steer back to New York. He eventually brought me up to my bedroom, which I had all to myself. Oh my god, I'm so ready to sleep, I thought. At that point, I had been on the road for about five months and had been sharing rooms with strangers and volunteers the whole time. I was craving some genuine privacy, the kind of solace where you know that no one else is going to open the door. Do you want to go explore the city for a bit? He asked. We roamed around Dublin, and he showed me his favorite spots in whiskey shops. He taught me how to select proper whiskey. Although the Irish are constantly inebriated, they are selective with how they want to get shit-faced and only deserve the finest. For James, it's Bushmills. Always. He grabs a bottle. We later meet up with some of his friends, sip some of our whiskey under the table while we have some of the best burgers in the city. We have a full laugh and talked about my travels and, you know, and eventually started talking about sex. I casually mentioned how I hadn't had any good experiences on my travels and we moved on to the next conversation. James then invited his friends over and we made our way back to his house. For the next however many hours, I had to keep up with the livers of five 20-something-year-old Irish men. We danced to Gangnam Style at full volume, which was the musical masterpiece of the year. As the hours ticked on, each belligerent friend slowly left the house. Around three in the morning, everyone was gone. 
But instead of saying he wanted to go to bed, James suggested we watch a James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan. God, I love these movies, he said. Even years before Netflix, I knew what watching a movie really meant. And up until that moment, I honestly hadn't considered James. But he was hot and got that voice, so why not? As the movie played, we slowly started inching towards each other, like two magnets with weak bonds. I was waiting for him to, you know, make a move. And then the movie ended. Maybe I misread this. Let's watch another one. So I watch him get up and put in another DVD and heard the spy music come on. When he got back on the couch, I slid over as close to him without touching. I could feel the heat radiating from his hand and dying for it to grab mine. Make a move, dude, I'm wide open! And he turns to me and says, I want to kiss you, but I also don't want to pressure you into doing anything you don't want to do. I get that I'm the host, but I don't want to make you uncomfortable. It needs to be your move if you want to go any further. There is nothing like a man who recognizes the sexual pressure that women face. I straddled him immediately. He grabs my waist, I lock my legs around him, and he walks up the stairs with me latching onto him like an octopus. Our lips never part. He manages to open and shut his bedroom door without putting me down. It is the closest he might have ever felt to being James Bond. I want to give you a good sexual experience, he whispered in my ear. The time I stayed with him, I never slept in my assigned room. Today on the episode, we're all about that amour. From exploring sexual freedom to swiping on soulmates and finding not the one. We will get under the sheets with travelers who explore their sexuality and capacities to love while being abroad. Make sure you're wearing headphones for this episode because it's gonna get steamy. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. There is something really titillating about having sex abroad. You're far from home, everything's new, you feel more adventurous, more open, more curious. Just the sound of a different accent might be enough to get you riled up. Okay, I'll I'll stop projecting. But I know I'm not the only one who's gotten off on the thrill of hooking up abroad. Jamie Brickhouse is a New York City storyteller and author. We recorded this episode in his Chelsea apartment that he shares with his husband. But years before he lived in the notorious gay heart of New York City, Jamie studied abroad in the 80s and got more than just his passport stamped. I have been sexually active since I was 15. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. For someone... And that's when I lost my three-way, but it's another story, but that was in, in, in Acapulco. So, I, <laughs> so travel for me... <laughs> travel means sex. Travel means sex. I love that. I love it. You have a diverse sexual passport. Yes. Um, <laughs> I love it. I like that. I remember that. <laughs> so I'm on the cusp of 21, and it's my junior year abroad... I'm living in London, but that means traveling across the continent, which was great. And this is 1988, so a different time, really. And I have just discovered foreskin. Not my own, um, because that was taken from me a long time ago, as it's taken from most American boys, whether or not you're Jewish. I think it's a, it's a very American thing, which I really didn't know that at the time. But I, part of my travel experience uh, in this time abroad was to be with as many men as possible. And they all had foreskin, and it was exciting and new and different. And at first I was a little grossed out by it, but then I thought, wow, there are a lot of great things you can do with foreskin. And, and I'm discovering them on my own. But this isn't a story, a story entirely about foreskin, I promise, um, But it's a nice part of it. And I've also discovered BO, body odor. And the Europeans, they aren't as obsessed with hygiene as the Americans, which I think maybe also plays into foreskin. Um, Everything comes back to foreskin. I'm sorry, I just can't get away from it. But and, And, of course, in Paris, which is where I'm traveling in this particular story, I get caught in rush hour in the metro 
and all those strap hangers and all those arms are raised in the air. And the B.O. is enormous. But... And I am in strolling through the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And I feel kind of like Angie Dickinson in the movie Dress to Kill. And I'll refresh any of your listeners who don't know or haven't seen that movie, but you really ought to see it. It's a Brian De Palma thriller. And Angie Dickinson in that movie is a wife who, um, a very sexy wife because she's Angie Dickinson and she's not getting laid and she finds herself in the impressionistic galleries of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she is being cruised heavily by this stranger in there, and she ends up picking him up. So I am, and I, that's just how I live my life is cinematically, so I, I often imagine myself as a sexy female movie star in most situations. It just makes life much more interesting. But the reason I feel this way is because I am strolling in the Musée d'Orsay, which is the uh, Impressionist it's uh, impressionist Art Museum of Paris. So I'm walking past Monet's and Renoir's and Cezanne's and Pissarro's. And as I'm doing that, I look over and I can see through the archway into the next gallery. And there is this tall... Drink of water. He's got mm, kind of curly hair, and it's a dirty blonde, and kind of a five o'clock shadow, and little olive complexion. And I'm thinking that looks better than any of the art I'm seeing on the walls. So we do this kind of cat and mouse game he looks at me too so and I'm feeling like he likes what he sees as well but we don't you know immediately approach each other we just keep moving through the galleries which is what happens to Angie Dickinson in the movie Dress to Kill and that's why I'm feeling just like her and I thought it was really hot when I saw that movie when I had not yet had sex and now I'm finally living this fantasy it's heaven so we're going, you know, through the galleries. We look at the art. We look at each other. I get a little bit closer to him. We both have our little um, brochures for the, the gallery guide, and mine has the British flag on it to indicate that I speak English, and I see that his has the French flag. I'm like, ooh, I've got a Frenchie on my hand. I'm in Paris. I'm going to have it with a, with, a, with a Parisian. This is perfect. And we finally meet in the third gallery and we finally start to talk to each other and it turns out he's not French but he speaks French better than he speaks English and they didn't have a Greek guide because he's Greek he's actually not Greek I mean well he is but he's a Cretan so I'm cruising a Cretan and he's very sexy and we immediately get to know each other, you know, exchanging information. We're both traveling. He lives in Athens. I'm living in London. Costa is his name, by the way, if I didn't tell you that. Very, you know, classically Greek. I'm like, oh my God, how could this get any better? And he's about my age, you know, so he's 20, 21. And, um, but he is staying there and he's got an apartment to himself and I'm in a, in a youth hostel. I'm like, that apartment sounds much more glamorous than, than what I'm in. And we go out, we, we, we arrange a date, and we have dinner, and the chemistry is even hotter than it was at the museum, and, you know, we're touching under the table and everything, and then finally he's like, you know, we kind of stroll down a, you know, gorgeous, starry, moonlit Parisian street with the Eiffel Tower lights twinkling in the background and um, he says hey do you want to go to my place and I was like yeah and we get to his place and we really haven't made out or anything at this point or gotten that close to each other and then when we get to his place we shut the door and we start making out and I discover he stinks he has B.O. and I'm like oh my god 
how am I going to take this? But we keep going, and I have to keep going. And the clothes peel off. I'm like, well, maybe when his clothes get off, maybe his clothes are just, he's, he's been traveling. And, you know, it's once those clothes are stripped away, then the BL will go away. But it doesn't. But I have to keep going because he's so delicious. And then I discover, to my delight, he's got foreskin. And as much as the B.O. is really upsetting me, I can't tear myself away from the foreskin. And I keep going. And we do it. And I know how to hold my nose without holding my nose. So I I don't think he can tell um, how repelled I am by the B.O., but... The sex is really great. And afterwards, when we're done, and it's clear we're, we're going to uh, play this little fling out as long as both of us are in Paris and he's got this wonderful apartment. And so he asked me to stay the night, and I said, yeah. And I go into his bathroom, and of course I had, didn't have my, my overnight bag with me or anything. And I said, um, ah, I've got it. I said, do you have um, toothbrush or or, or toothpaste? I'll just, uh, because I didn't bring anything. And I said, oh, and do you have deodorant? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Do you use deodorant? And he says, oh, yeah, I use deodorant. Really? And he says, yeah, it's right in the cabinet. You can use some if you want to. And I open up the cabinet, and I discover something else new. This, like, cream deodorant. You just, you open it up and it looks like a roll-on, except it's not, and you just squeeze it and this cream comes out. And I actually tried it because I really didn't have any deodorant. Well, I'm here to give you a little public service announcement that cream deodorant does not work. And he was living proof. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm in a dilemma because I'm totally into this guy and besides being sexy and besides the sex being great and all that, he's also really smart and, and we're connecting. And of course, I'm having this amazing European experience. But I'm like, how am I going to get over the BO thing? And the next day, um, we kind of go our separate ways because I've got to go back to my youth hostel. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then I remembered. Remember those um, Pepe Le Pew cartoons, those old Warner Brother cartoons where Pepe Le Pew you know, is the ultimate French Casanova, the French lover, and he thinks he's just irresistible to women, but of course he's a skunk, and he stinks to high heaven, and he falls in love with his cat, uh, and she likes him, but she can't stand the smell, and she's constantly repelled to him and, and, um, and holding her kitty nose. Well, that's how I felt. I felt like that cat. But I remembered what she did. She figured out how to be with Pepe Le Pew, And she went to the cheese factory to stink herself up. And that way, she smelled as bad as he did, and they were on the same playing field. And so, I just let myself go. I stopped bathing. I stopped using deodorant. And on the second day, as he's fucking me, and I'm lying back, and I lean over, and my arms are above my head, And there's my armpit, and I smell myself, and I stink, and it's okay, and so does he, and it doesn't matter anymore. And I had gotten over my American bourgeois hang-up about at least one bath a day, and deodorant always, and I'm like, it doesn't matter. And it was liberating. The other thing that was hot about him that you need to know, he had told me that I was his first guy. So that was hot, that I was his first guy. So not only did he like me, but he liked me enough to take the plunge, and he took the plunge a lot. I resonated so much with Jamie's excitement on meeting someone you have great sexual chemistry with. But it's a little tricky because you start to set expectations and possibly ignoring some red flags. I found myself drifting into that zone with James. We would spend long mornings in bed. Then around noon, we would put on big puffy robes and he would make me a proper Irish breakfast. As I sipped on my black tea, he would cook up black pudding, pork sausages, and rashers. In the remains of the bacon fat, he would then fry up an egg and some bread. If we wanted to be healthy, we would add a tomato slice. I was excited and thought, maybe this could be something more. It's perfect. He loves New York, I love Ireland, 
We both loved the same books, movies, going out, and that rugged horse of an accent was enough to get me... Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. I'm sure you can guess that I got more acquainted with his bed than Dublin. But I wasn't worried about it because I was volunteering an hour south of Dublin for the next month and could come back. I extended our few days into a week, and I would have pushed it back even further if I hadn't made a commitment. When I went down to volunteer, I would wait through the long, cold weeks of Wicklow, a darling seafaring town, until I could go back and be with James. When I would visit him on the weekends, we would walk around the city and I would ask him to say words like butterscotch and peckish, just to laugh and indulge in that voice. One Friday afternoon, I said, you know what I love the most about Ireland? It smells like bacon. Oh, that's the peat that's been cut from the earth and harvested from the bogs of County O'Fally. Yeah, I guess it does have a beacon smell to it, as we walked towards Trinity to look at the Book of Kells. We entered what felt like a repurposed cathedral, but honestly, every building during the 13th century feels that way. James guided me through the long halls and walked me to the Great Library. The ceiling was arched high like a train station. We strolled past the rows of thick, dark brown wooden shelves. They carried the weight of ancient knowledge and aging pages. Magnificent busts of scholars and writers bookended every row, staring stoically at passerbys. This makes my university seem like a prison. I can't believe you went to school here. Yeah, it's been around longer than a donkey's year, but it's a bit of a joke. Everything's a joke here. I can't wait to get back to New York where everything is legit. I quietly laughed out of my nose as we walked up to the Book of Kells. We leaned over the glass that prevented us from touching or sneezing this archaic text. The Book of Kells is an illustrated gospel book, ornamented with 16th century symbols, calligraphy, and iconography. It's like looking at an ancient spell book with thick binding and a ribbon to save your place. I gently pressed my arm against his as we leaned over and admired it together. I just love standing next to him. I couldn't believe I found him. When we're abroad, I think we take more risks with love. There's something about being anonymous, not having that typical pair of watchful eyes looking over your shoulder as you're swiping on your phone. You might get inspired to try new positions or people. Those inhibitions stay at home while you go out and explore your sexuality more freely. And when the unlikely happens, you meet someone who gives you an electric shock. That star-crossed lover's wave of emotion might crash harder on you than if you were at home. I think that spell was placed on Aaron and Caroline, two travel photographers, Both of them were at a point in their lives where they were feeling the winds of change, an energy, a restlessness, a need to adjust. So they followed it. We'll start with Erin's story. I just felt really lost for the last couple of years in my career. I was really happy at my job, but just like looking for something else. And anytime I had some some Christmas vacation or Thanksgiving break or whatever, I would just take that time and get in my car and go for a road trip. Just like looking for that thing to fill that void that I couldn't do on my own by staying in one spot. And I went to visit a friend in the Raleigh-Durham area. I was supposed to stay for like a weekend, but I just got like super restless. And I'm like, I'm just, I just feel called to go to Asheville. So I packed up my stuff. I left earlier. She was a little like, ah, what are you doing? I thought we were hanging out all weekend. I'm like, I just got to go. So I went to Asheville. I spent the day in the mountains hiking. I ended up at a bar downtown. I got a burger and a beer. I'm just like flipping through my phone on Tinder, you know, like what else am I going to do? I'm just there. And Caroline's face popped up. The person Erin swiped right on was also a little uncertain of her future. Caroline had just bought out her ex-business partner and now ex-girlfriend out of their donut shop and was looking to reorganize her life. And so I was just in this phase of like trying to simplify all the things. So I went from like being open six days a week to five days a week because I just needed, was needing to separate like what I do in work and having something outside of that. So I was like not feeling restless, but I was feeling very much like I need boxes and they need to have really clear lines around them in a way that I hadn't ever really felt before about like work. My work had just like become me. And though I loved my job and I was really wanting to be able to have some sort of separation. That's kind of where I was. Then for whatever reason, 
they matched. Where our ancestors would have done spells, love potions, or prayed to the goddess of love, an algorithm works its divine intervention. And I was like, okay. I mean, I dated men up until this point in my life. I dated some women, but I was like ready to do something different. When you're in a new place, you have like the anonymous thing going and it's like anything can happen. So I think I was like feeling that that was, you know, there's like a whole new group of people here because it's way outside my typical radius. You know, that's cool. But at that point in time, I was, I'm just like reinventing everything about myself and I identify as bisexual, so that felt like an okay avenue for me to explore in an authentic way. Caroline popped up, and we matched, and do you want to take it from there? Well, we matched, but I had I had just been on Tinder for like a week. Everyone around me was on it, and I just felt like, you know, the kid at the back of the bus, and I had lived in Asheville for a while and was just feeling kind of stagnant with how to meet new groups of people. And so I thought, well, I guess it's like fairly harmless. But my parents had driven up from Louisiana and we were actually in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when Aaron was in Asheville. But somehow we were within each other's distance range. And so we both popped up on each other's screens. We both were really nice and said, yeah, (laughs) swiped the right way. I love the idea of Caroline secretly swiping through Tinder as her and her parents are out to dinner somewhere in Tennessee. But there must have been some digital intervention because Asheville and Chattanooga are over 200 miles away from each other. And I don't think that that's a desired radius on Tinder. But then she left the next morning and I got into town that night. And so we never actually met. We just like basically kind of checked each other off. Um, And then a couple days went by and then we started kind of slowly engaging on the app. Um, And then that very quickly led to just like email I think what's interesting about Aaron and Caroline's matching is that their interests were piqued enough to keep talking. They weren't in the same location, not even the same state. They hadn't even met each other in person, like why keep talking? There seemed to be some bigger draw because how much can you get from a few photos and messages? The interesting thing about online dating is the ability to make up stories. When we first see someone in person, we feel a connection and we just have to make a move now. Whereas when we have the internet and can swipe endlessly through photos, we have so much more time to make up so much more about each other. I think what stood out to me for Erin when I saw her photos come across is that they were just, I mean, it just sounds so cheesy, but like she was literally just like this beam of light coming out of the screen, like she was just radiant of energy. And she was also like, so weird. I mean, (laughs) I could tell through like five photos, like this girl is funny, weird, like funny, weird, creative, you know? I mean, she just like, she just was weird, you know? And I could tell that she loved to travel and she said that that in her. And so I just thought this is someone that is, um, even though we're both actually quite introverted, this is someone that, that is, that likes to be out in the world, even though we need long periods of time of like quiet and by ourselves, you know, there was this, like this, um, just like pulling things out of life that I could just tell in her in her photograph. So it was just, it was just like so refreshing. And it was also like, it didn't seem like based on her pictures that she put herself in a box of like, this is who I am. You know, it was just like, um, I, it just felt like she was really herself rather than like trying to identify as like, I'm this kind of person that's attracted to women. Oh, that's really nice of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think for Caroline, like for me, I was like reading people's Tinder profiles because I can be somewhat of like a word geek. And I was like really interested in what people had to say and like the 50 characters or whatever. And like, I mean, obviously I was like really attracted to your picture because I'm not so like into the words that I'm going to like not look at the photo. So it's like, if the photo is cool, then I'm going to read the words. So photo is cool. I like the photo. Let me see what it says. It says truth telling, vulnerability, and side splitting laughter. And that was it. And I'm like, like record scratch like that caught my eye you know like wow there's like something there to that and I can actually ask something that isn't like hey what's up you know like it can be just a conversation at that point so 
I just like took a chance on that because because I think I was pretty t- t- like pretty picky on Tinder. It would be mostly like left, 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 right, left, 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 left. You know, it's just like I got to the point where it almost felt like a video game. But she kind of brought everything to a scratch, and I'm like, I want to take a chance on that. But we never met up, so it wasn't like the typical thing that Tinder tends to get. Like we joked that Tinder for us was tender because we just started like a real relationship and it led to marriage. So, you know, <laughs> and it was like actually a success story, but we didn't hook up the first night because we didn't even meet each other. No, it took months. <laughs> <laughs> Their courtship turned into a gradual engagement, which is funny given that they met on an app optimized to meet people faster. I asked what it was like to get to know someone so slowly, message by message, email by email. Well, I got butterflies. Like when she would write to me, I'd see my phone go off and I'm like, <gasps> and I like had to stop whatever I was doing and then like spend a lot of time like coming up with a response that was more than just like eating cheeseburgers or going for a walk. Like I'd want to tell her something about myself and then ask a question. I just like wanted to know more. We started really quickly writing really, really long emails to the to the extent that we would have to, there would be like, like she would write an email to basically spend the evening doing it. This was like over the winter. So, you know, it gets dark at five o'clock. So she would like spend an evening writing a letter and then I would read it. And then the next night I would spend like three hours responding to it. And so it was, it was a really interesting, it was a really great way to spend time actually, because I haven't written letters or I don't correspond with people in email and to that degree. And so it was a, it was a really wonderful way of like having to put it in words and write it down. And so it kind of slowed everything down. I love the idea of both of them spending long winter nights in dark rooms lit by the soft blue hue of their computers, painstakingly typing away, editing, revising, deleting, deleting, deleting. So intentional. The most I get is a text at two in the morning saying, you up, capital U. It was kind of antiquated, the way colonial lovers, separated by long distances, would use every tiny margin on a page to send messages. I mean, Google has way more storage space now, but you get the idea. But I think what blows my mind the most is that they hadn't even heard each other's voices yet. And I think we both at that point were just like, you know, we're not getting any younger. It's like, let's just like see if there's something real. Because if there is, we're, we're an eight hour drive from each other. Like if there is something real here, let's just figure that out. Because then there's going to be a lot of like, this is really going to impact our lives. And so we just sort of got real real quick. So I wrote e. Aaron and said, you know, what do you think about like getting on the phone? You know, you want to like bring it there. So she writes back. No, but you can come visit me. <laughs> so it's like, literally, I just said to myself, like, who says that? Like, that is so weird. And I dig it. And so I said, yeah. So I booked a plane ticket. We figured it out. And we actually did end up talking on the phone before I went to go visit, like the week before I went to go visit. I can't imagine the suspense of finally meeting each other. I mean, they had only seen static photos and read their writing. Like, there's really not much to base off of. I find that attraction is so much of how people move and sound in the world. How they hold their body, nod their head, move their hands while they talk. Aaron and Caroline had none of that, but were still willing to risk it. How well could the internet transcribe a person's aura through routers, Wi-Fi, and satellites? But I flew to go visit her in Frederick over Valentine's Day weekend just happened to be when it was. And uh, she picked me up at the airport and she picked me up at the airport. We had about an hour drive to her house. And I was just really excited. I mean, she, I had, I had gone through every single photograph Erin had ever put up on Facebook and Instagram. And she's a, a really wonderful photographer. So I'd never been to Frederick, Maryland. And, and so I was, you know, it was twofold for me. I was super excited to meet Erin to see her in real life. I told her I was 6'5". <laughs> I believed her for a long time. Which I'm not, I'm 5'6". But so, but it was also kind of like, I don't know, like I wonder what she's really gonna be like in real life. You know, like the size of her, like how, how will that feel? How will that be? But I was also really excited to like get out of Asheville for a trip, go somewhere new. So I was, I think there was a little bit of nervousness of just like everything felt right. I didn't really have any 
worry that I was going to get there and it was going to be like, oh, this is not what I thought it was. But there is that moment of like, I am so excited that if that were to happen, just the let like just the letdown of that, like she had already become such a huge part of my life, even though I hadn't met her yet. But but I would say 99% of it was just excitement. I agree. I was totally excited too. I had already felt invested at that point, like emotionally and stepping outside of my comfort zone. You know, I didn't know if this person was going to like come into my house and kill me. Like you see sometimes on TV, you know, I was taking a risk and she said she was six, five. <laughs> That's a lot to contend with. I'm only like five, four, but I quickly saw from the airport that like, yeah, I, I think I can handle myself if shit goes down here. You know, I think I'm good. But yeah, it was it was scary. And like, I think the whole way home from the airport, I didn't see a single thing in the car. I normally have the radio on. I like to sing really loud and really bad. And I was just like, you know, just like really concentrating on the road because I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, oh my God, this person's here. Like we've had all these really rich conversations and now I have nothing to say. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> it, it was hilarious. Like, but when she picked me up in the airport, she basically like sped walked ahead of me. I mean, it was just like I was nervous. Hilarious. And then we got in the car and we had an hour drive and it was 18 degrees outside and she didn't turn the heat on. I forgot. And it was totally like she said nothing. There was no music. I mean, it was just like, what is happening? And then once we got like out of the car in her apartment, then she like appeared, you know? Like she she came back into her body. But I mean, I was just like, <laughs> like it was hilarious. Because, like, I think she knew, but I didn't know. I'm like, I got to see what this person smells like, what they sound like in real life. Like, is she, is she just, like, weird? Like, I, I'm not really sure I can do this, but I really want to. So I was just, like, trying to feel all that out and, like, catch up to reality because the internet person was really cool, but the real person, I had no idea. I needed to know what their first sighting was like. Did their expectations match up? she's small and she's like, needs to be like, like I felt myself like need to be, cause I can be a really strong hugger, like take the breath out of you. And I remember like feeling like I should, I should be aware of how much I put in to the first hug so that I don't, you know, cause her a problem. But, but yeah, there was that, that I wasn't expecting that, but it was other than that, it was a resounding, just like, just like, yeah, it was like that feeling that I felt when I first saw her pictures and I was, it was like that in real life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It was like, oh, I just found my person. I, I was like so happy that she showed up with all this dog fur on her. Because I'm like, yeah, like that's real life. Like you didn't try so hard. I did try. I actually did try. I thought I did try, but it was fleece. You know, it just, it was. But she had this jacket on that just like, come to find out this is like the jacket. And like these dogs are a really big part of her life. And they became a part of my life. But like. You know, like we want to make a first impression, but we're keeping it real. We got showing up a dog fur. Like I can, I can get down with that. <laughs> I still don't understand this whole "you just know" thing. Like you just know that you want to be with someone for a long time, maybe forever. I still don't know if I believe in the one, one out of how many people on this earth. And if there's only one, how much longer do I have to wait? What are the odds of finding him? Okay, sorry, it's it's not about me right now. And, you know, we went back maybe four or five times and that was it. And we just, I don't know, we just knew. In less than a year, Aaron and Caroline roadmapped a whole new life together. And by mapped out, I mean thoroughly. They now drive across America, live out of a van, doing photography. They take photos and tell stories of everywhere they go. Let's see, fast forward about a year? Yeah, I think a year. It was like um, on one of the visits for me, we had talked about like me actually moving to Asheville. And I remember like shit got real, real for me when I went into my principal's office and was like, so I'm not coming back next year. You know, I'm like, and then I realized and she looks at me and she's like, oh, and she's like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And she's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like my voice just kept getting higher and higher. But I realized like I'm doing this, you know, I'm going all in. And then I found myself telling my friends and my parents and my family. And then I moved and it's like, I'm all in at this point. You know, I've like cut ties to the past. Here we go. It's a bit of a leap of faith to get married to someone you've known for less than a year. But I understand that when you have a deep connection, someone who just knows to kiss you on the forehead without knowing it's your favorite who you can talk with until three in the morning, 
or makes you laugh after you've been crying, well, that's someone to keep. So I wanted to know how this decision has been as they walked in the real world together. It hasn't been an easy road since then. You know, we have some, it hasn't always been, you know, easy, but that's real life too. But a relationship doesn't sustain off of side-splitting laughter, deep talks into the night, and making breakfast in the morning. A relationship means commitment. Although I'm sure they've dealt with the same issues all couples go through, their understanding of relationships and romance has gotten much more pungent, more robust. The, the idea or the definition of romance has kind of changed as our life has taken on kind of being on the road and the, the, the grittiness of being on the road. And so what it's become for the, the, the experiences that I have on the road that feel really romantic to me are we both loved to run and we both were runners before we met and they were primarily we ran alone but we very quickly tried to merge our love of running together and it's been you know it's been an interesting thing for us to figure out a lot of push pull a lot of try this kind of do it too much separate like being able to say I really want to run alone today and it's not because I don't love you or you know but so What's become a really romantic part for me is running together in these beautiful places, particularly the national parks, and ending up, you know, being in a place neither one of us have ever been before and going down a trail and and knowing that, you know, a couple miles down the road is a lake, but we've never been there before. And we get there and it's just completely stunning. And we, we are lucky enough for the next 15 minutes to be there completely by ourselves. And so it's like, wow, we are, we are here and we're not just on vacation. We're here because this is like a part of our life. And though there are so many inconveniences that come with like really living our life on four wheels, like this is like, how could anything be better than this? We might go back to like another, you know, we're sweaty and we have like another five days in the car before we take a shower, you know? And so there's that real life, like Maybe 10. Maybe 10. <laughs> Maybe 10. Uh, I mean, I get so stinky. I have to put all my clothes, I have to tie them actually to the bumper because I can't, I'm not allowed to put them in the car because it, it's, it's like unsanitary. But it's like that moment is just like, what's a more romantic moment than we are doing, we, we have... There's a lot of risk that comes with quitting her job, selling my business, and taking our work life on the road. It's just adapting all the time. But for that to be a part of it is, I think, pretty damn romantic. I wanted Erin and Caroline's story while I was in Ireland. The story where the winds of travel spin your compass in a new direction. It seems so adventurous. And I liked James, I, I really did, but I think I wanted to like someone. I wanted a reason to stay in Europe. I wanted that quixotic story of, oh, we met while I was traveling and we couldn't bear to be apart from each other, so I decided to stay in Ireland and we summer in France now. I wanted that. On the outside, he was everything. Handsome, strong build, wore glasses at night, and had a voice that went down like a fine whiskey. But I couldn't ignore his blatant internal struggles. His drunken anger towards his country and lack of opportunities. His relentless nostalgia for New York. I saw someone who was confused and longing for the past, while I was focused on the future. There was a sickening feeling in my stomach, my last night with him the night before he left for America, like so many Irish before him. I sat on his bed and watched him pack with excitement. I lounged in his bathrobe trying to pose daintily on the bed. I loved the seductive comfort of wearing his clothes. Even though I had months of traveling in unexplored countries ahead of me, I didn't want that night to end. I wanted him to sip whiskey with me and rant about Ireland. I wanted him to make love to me, not just have sex. I wanted him to say, Maybe we could make this work. The last words he said to me the next morning as he got ready to leave was, maybe I'll see you in New York. The advice that I take from Aaron and Caroline is that relationships are challenging, even if your meeting story is highly fanciful and wildly unlikely. 
Relationships are a combination of connection and commitment. And where falling in love abroad seems to have a heightened energy, so is breaking up. The dissolving intimacy of a relationship can feel more melodramatic because nothing around you is familiar, you can't read the street signs, people are moving all around you, and the one body that you know is slowly becoming less familiar to you. Brad Lawrence, a New York City storyteller, has had a not-so-conscious uncoupling with his longtime girlfriend as they traveled throughout Eastern Europe together in the 90s. It is 2003. It is a late summer. Um, I am living near Columbia University in Morningside Heights in student housing because I am uh, involved with a girl who is going to uh, Columbia Law. Her name is Julia, and as she's been, but at this point, she's been gone for three months because she's in the law school. And she's on a summer internship in Budapest working for a gypsy human rights organization. And what's going to happen, what's supposed to happen, is that in three days, I am going to get in an airplane to join her for the last three weeks of her time in Budapest. We're gonna travel Central Europe together and it's gonna be great. But then I wake up one day and I just have that feeling. Just when you feel like something's, something's not right, something's wrong, something's off, and you just kinda of know it. And uh, I mean, like something's just not, it's just not, something's not above board. And when I say that I just have that feeling that something's wrong, uh, what I mean is that I hacked her email and I found out about the Serbian boy she'd been fooling around with for the past month. All right. Now, in my defense, um, she had hacked my email before. This was like par for the course for our relationship. And she would hack my email later after we'd broken up. We had trust issues that outlasted our relationship. And our relationship lasted for eight years non-consecutively <laughs> all right and so uh because like because what you call dysfunction we called foreplay i immediately get on the phone uh which cost money in 2003 to cause to call budapest and uh, begin to rack up phone bills having these like you know very fraught conversations about what's going on over there and all this kind of stuff and there's all these tears and all these recriminations and then the decision is made that like i'm gonna come i'll come and we'll work it out we'll work it out and, and it'll be fine, just like, get on the plane, get on the plane, we'll get it, we'll work it out. And I'm going to do this because uh, there are a few things that unite me and Julia. And one of the things that unite us is that neither of us come from, we do not come from people who travel. You know, we don't come, like, there's not any money in, the, in either of our families. Our cheapness outweighs whatever kind of relationship you have. And, like, we pay $800 being on an airplane, I'm getting on an airplane. That's going to happen. Um, and so I do, and I get on the airplane, uh, I go to the airport, stand in line, uh, through security the whole time, thinking to myself, we're going to work it out, it's going to be fine, we're going to work it out, we're going to work it out, it's going to be fine. Get on the airplane, the airplane takes off, flying over the Atlantic, we're going to work it out, we're going to work it out, it's going to be fine. Uh, I land, get in there to work it out, um, I get off the plane, get out of security, through customs, um, out to, to where uh, Julia is to meet her, and we break up on the shuttle from the airport. <laughs> All right, we didn't make it 15 minutes, and uh, but now we've got to spend three weeks, right, traveling around together because we had all these plans now, and in one week, her lease on her room that she had for the summer runs out, and we've got no other option but to like go somewhere, and uh, so we've had like the next week, the first week is spent with us kind of circling one another around Budapest, trying not to discuss how angry we are with one another, but instead of like going to the sites in, uh, in Budapest, like they have this, there's this place outside of Budapest, it is basically a parking lot, where they have taken all of the stuff from the Soviet era, and just sort of hauled it out there, and unceremoniously dropped it off, right? And so now we're out there wandering around the ruins of a failed state on opposite sides of this park, trying not to indulge in the notion that this is a metaphor. Um, and it's just, and this is, this is that, that, like that final week in Budapest, and it's awful. It's just terrible. We make it through that, but now, now we've got to get on a train. Now we've got to get on a train, and uh, our plan is to go north, 
to Prague, and then from Prague to circle back down to Vienna, and then from Vienna we're going to go to the Dalmatian coast uh, because the beaches are beautiful and romantic, and that's what's called for right now. Um, so that's the plan. Uh, so we get on the train and we head up to Prague and. So far, like well, while we've been in Budapest, we've kind of been we've been keeping it civil. Um, it's been tense. There's been a couple of little flare-ups, but most of all, we've been sort of like you know uh, keeping the lid on things, not going at one another too hard. And we get to Prague, and now we're wandering around Prague. Uh, when Prague is as a city, it's a museum piece, and we're wanting it's beautiful and it is romantic, but it's also kind of silly um, and. Uh, you know, we'd see things that uh, would sort of amuse one or the other and they'd crack a joke. And here's the thing about me and Julia. Um, one of the other things that united us is that we were always excellent traveling companions. Uh, for all uh, that we lacked as domestic partners, which was a lot, we made up for as boon companions. And that, we just sort of naturally fall back into that rhythm. You know, once we're out there on the road, wandering around, that just kind of takes over again. And so I would see something, or she would see something like a really bad street performer, and you cannot throw a dead cat in Prague without hitting a particularly bad street performer. Um, and you know, I'd make a joke about that, and she'd laugh, and I'd laugh, and we'd look at each other, and laugh together and then realize the reality of our relationship and then we'd stop laughing and get sad and we'd cry and then we'd go to the hotel and have the kind of sex you can only have when the ultimate here are lonely and desperate for comfort and solace and the only person to offer you comfort and solace is the person who's making you lonely and desperate. <laughs> Some people travel Europe by rail, we traveled by emotional roller coaster. It was great. Instead we leave Prague, and then uh, we have to head to the, back to the train station to get on the train for Croatia and the Dalmatian coast. And we head there, and we're running late, so we think we're going to miss the train, and we go running up the platform, and the train's still there, thank God we've made it, and then we get onto the train, and the train is, has been oversold beyond capacity, and there is no air conditioning, there is no power at this point. It is just sitting in the train station. It is late August. It is like 95 degrees in the platform, and it is 110 degrees in the train car. And there are just sweaty, sweaty Central European vacationers sort of lying in this, sort of packed into this train car, just kind of on top of one another, sweating out all the moisture out of their body and onto the body under them. They're just in there like everyone is so hot and so overheated they just can't move. They're just lying there and their eyes kind of listlessly stare at you as you make your way onto the train and start stepping over the people who are sitting in the aisles as you're like trying to find just a place to like settle for a minute. And as we're going through there, trying to find a place to sit, as we get like further back in, and there's no light in this thing because everyone is so packed into this thing, there's no light coming in from the windows. And so we're just kind of like, making our way through the aisles, flipping over people sitting in the aisles, and we realize, we get towards the back, that there's nowhere to sit, and we're just going to stand for the duration of this trip. And the thing is, because of a, so we had to do with like uh, Soviet Cold War uh, differences in rail gauges, at this point, there was no way to go directly from Vienna to Croatia. So you had to go west first, to Western Austria, and then the train would turn around, you get on a different train, and the train would take you back down around the Italian, like the, the Italian Alps are like around the Italian coast, and then down to Croatia, and it was an 11 hour journey. And it's going to be 11 hours in 105 degree heat, in the dark, standing up, just like nothing but the stench of people who've been sweating for 11 hours. That's what we're facing. And Julia is in front of me, and I am behind her with this giant backpack, all of our possessions, on my back. And Julia turns around, and she looks up at me. She's a small girl. And she looks up at me, and she has tears welling up in her eyes. And it's been so much stress 
breaking up and traveling together and sort of being trapped together in our mutual heartbreak um, and trying to uh, ignore it or, or, or sleep with it or whatever we're trying to do about it. And now I just, I can just, I just see her break. And she looks at me and the, and the tears well up in her eyes and she says, I, I can't do this. And there are people still piling on the train behind me. And there's no way out at the other end. The only way out is back the way we came. And when we got to the train station, the train was already be, like late beyond its scheduled time to leave. But now I realize I have got to get her off this train. It's the last thing I do for this relationship. I have to get her off this train. And I turn around and I look at people like piling in this train behind me and all of people sort of pile up on top of one another in this 105 degree sweat box and I think the only thing there is to do now is to unleash the ugly American. And so I raise to my full height and with my full voice I say, GETTING OFF THE TRAIN! And I begin to use that giant backpack as a counter lever, and I am just taking my arms and sweeping people out of my way, just flinging German tourists up against like the windows of this train, just coming. And you can see like like they'll be sort of getting into this thing, sweating and delirious. And they'll look and they'll see me coming, and their eyes will go wide with panic. And then it's too late. I'm on them. And it's just bound. And I get us back down through the crowd, through the corridor, beyond all the tourists back to the, uh, the doorway and out onto the platform. I turn around and I grab Julia and put her on the platform and just as I do, the air brakes release and the train begins to pull out of the station. And we turn and we watch it rumble off into the distance and as we do, this huge sense of relief comes over us that we are not on it. And we are free and we are here and we begin to laugh. We're just laughing with the relief and elation and freedom. And as we're laughing, suddenly Julia's laughter changes into tears and light sobs. And she turns around, she looks up at me, her face is red and her eyes are wet. And she says, I am so sorry. I feel like I have wasted your time. And I think to myself that, okay, if this was about getting married or having kids or starting a life or even a healthy relationship, maybe some time has been wasted. But if it was about having stories to tell, <laughs> worth every second. <laughs> Thank you. Months later, our planes flew in opposite directions. James returned back to Dublin. He settled in more. I kept traveling, moved to New York. This was like seven years ago. I recently saw on Facebook that he got married. As I sat in my bedside apartment, with 35 countries stamped in my passport, but no ink on a marriage certificate. In hindsight, I know I created unrealistic expectations. Our hearts can sometimes be bigger explorers than our own bodies. Wandering into daydreams, creating fantastical futures in faraway places, and hoping that they might come true. Love and travel must be siblings. They're both wild, often unruly, and endlessly addictive. They catapult us out of our comforts and keep us begging for more. But we can take what we've learned from both of them. It can show us that attraction is not something in our control and can go beyond language. That there might not just be one person for us and that some are worth the distance. But neither love nor travel is stable. Hopping from bed to bed or country to country wears on the body and the heart. But all that adventure can show us what we really want when we're ready to nest. Someone who makes every day feel like an adventure. Someone who can encourage you to grow while also bringing out your best self. Some fit you best. And you may never meet them unless you go out and find them.
mean, I could, yeah, I had, oh, no. I had some high school French, um, but <laughs> really doesn't. Do it much. was como talibu, y'all. <laughs> 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 Which literally means, how are you, y'all? If you love traveling with your special someone, check out the Worldwide Honeymoon Travel Podcast. Hosts Kat and Chris Butler are newlyweds navigating the world of couples travel, and they're taking you along for the ride. Discover romantic destinations, hilarious travel stories, and practical tips and travel hacking to help you plan your own couples trip. Join the adventure on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.